Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Hemant Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. Please support the show by going to patreon.com slash Friendly Atheist Podcast, and today I'm excited to introduce you to a couple of guests. For a lot of listeners, I suspect conspiratorial thinking is something you connect with religion or right-wing politics, but of course it's also rampant in the world of New Age spirituality. Think Gwyneth Paltrow or Robert Kennedy Jr., They're not explicitly religious, but their fans are not necessarily known for their critical thinking skills either. My guests today have been dissecting that kind of BS for years. Julian Walker has written extensively on cults and gurus and New Age nonsense. Derek Berez is an author and media expert who's worked with a number of media and tech companies. Both of them are also active yoga enthusiasts, a practice that they will admit has become rife with spiritual silliness that they oppose. Both of them, along with Matthew Remsky, are co-hosts of the podcast Conspirituality, which tackles how spiritual beliefs that can nurture creativity and meaning have transformed into memes of a quickly globalizing paranoia. They just published a book about this topic called Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Health Threat. Uh, Julian, Derek, thank you both for joining me here. And I'm wondering, uh, Julian, we'll start with you. Do you want to just give a brief introduction about yourself to people who may not be familiar with you? Yeah, absolutely. Hi, Hammett. Nice to be here with you. Been a big fan of the podcast for a long time. Thank you. I I originally came to the U.S. from South Africa as a uh, as a very young man and went to music school. And while I was in music school, discovered that yoga was a really wonderful way to help me deal with aches and pains in my body from sitting hunched over a music stand for many hours a day. And I just stayed with it. So I, I stayed with yoga kind of before it was really a popular thing. And it was very helpful for me. And I ended up teaching as you do when you're a kind of a struggling artist and looking for a way to pay the bills. And over time, I think as I continued growing up, as I continued to be interested in science and in reason, uh, as I became a more uh, convinced atheist, I started to see that there was a lot going on in the yoga world, in the subculture that I was part of, that was dodgy and not particularly rational and, and perhaps kind of psychologically unhealthy. And so I started writing about that kind of stuff online. And that's how uh, Derek and I largely started to intersect and connect with each other about 10 years ago. Very cool. Derek, what's your background? I came to yoga in the mid-90s. I have a degree in religion from Rutgers University, and I was studying world religions with a focus on Eastern religions. So I was reading the texts and doctrines before I started a physical practice. Uh, Having grown up an athlete with a number of physical problems from injuries, I found yoga shortly after and really became enamored by it. But my suspicions were always up, and that really came from being the religion reporter for the school newspaper at Rutgers for two years, because I would go and interview religious leaders and experts from all these different faiths, and all of them thought that they had the right one, which kind of raised my antenna there and made me actually pushed me toward atheism at that time, because I love the mythologizing and narrative storytelling of spiritual practices. But then I also really enjoy science. And I eventually became a health and science journalist as well. So yoga, I taught it for 17 years at Equinox, Equinox Fitness, along with another other uh, of other movement modalities. 
I still practice regularly. The pandemic ended my teaching. It still is very meaningful to me, but it also causes a lot of people to suspend any rational thinking uh, when they begin these practices for some reason. And as Julian said, we've kind of been studying that f on our own for a long time. And the pandemic just created the conditions for us to create conspirituality and also gave us an audience because a lot more people were realizing that it was a problem. Tell me about that specifically, because like you said, your podcast begins shortly after the pandemic shut everything down. What was it about that time that made you guys think, you know, this is the right time to talk about these issues you've both been thinking about independently for a while? Well, I was a columnist for Big Think for about nine years, and I came across a Medium article by Jules Evan, who's a philosopher in the UK, who had unearthed this 2011 academic paper, which had coined the term conspirituality. I wrote it for Big Think. It was in my mind. It was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And then the week that Mickey Willis released the pseudo-documentary Plandemic, I immediately knew that it was going to be a real problem. Uh, both Julian and I know him from the Los Angeles yoga community. Uh, he was a very prominent filmmaker in a small subsection of that community. And it was a propaganda film. And so I asked Matthew and Julian to come on to my podcast to discuss it. We hit it off. Uh, we've all known each other, but we really kind of felt we had something. So we pretty quickly within two weeks decided to spin up conspirituality to continue to talk about things we had independently been researching. But the pandemic created the conditions for us to be able to talk about it on a much deeper and broader level. Yeah, and, and coincidentally, at, at that same time, although there are no accidents, so maybe not coincidentally, I was observing how all of my social media feeds were just getting taken over with all of like the early forms of the conspiracy stuff that was swirling during COVID. COVID's not real. It's a hoax. It's caused by 5G. This is all the way to take away our freedoms. And even in those early days, there was some inklings of like, oh, this is all going to be about forcing us to take vaccines. And the reason that was noteworthy is that my timelines were filled with life coaches, yoga teachers, you know, alternative healers, just different people that, I, that I'd met over a 30-year career, some of whom were friends, some of whom were people who followed my work, some of whom were colleagues, and we were, a lot of networking goes on on social media. And I was like, why is this happening to this group? So I wrote a piece for Medium called The Red Pill Overlap that really tried to unpack this and make sense of it and, and explain it through the lens of how so spiritual people tend to be susceptible to certain kinds of outsider, maverick, contrarian thinking, which includes conspiracy theories. And that that piece got a lot of traction. And yeah, then the, the, the conversation started between the three of us. And, and Matthew, by the way, who isn't here with us today, Matthew Remsky, who's our, our third colleague, had been writing about yoga and cults for many years and had published several books on, on those topics. And yeah, when the three of us got talking, it was like, we are uniquely situated to talk about this in a way that I think people really responded to because uh, there weren't a lot of people who were ready to go. I I want to go back to the vaccine thing in just a little bit because it's such mm -hmm. a big topic. But something you said there, you said in that particular life coach spirituality community, one of the things that might have led these people down the conspiratorial path is this desire for outside information, the, the what was it, rebellion, the, contrary, mm -hmm. uh, the contrarian nature of all that. I have seen that in my little bubble of atheism, where a lot of atheists, I think because they felt that when they convinced themselves God doesn't exist, it felt so... It felt so right. I mean, we all can believe, we all can defend it in our own minds, but it also felt like this is something everyone else has wrong. I'm right. I can prove it. There's some power in that sort of knowledge. And I feel like a lot of people who became famous 15, 20 years ago for broadcasting and promoting atheism have also slipped into anti-trans nonsense. They've promoted a different, not spirituality per se, but other kinds of uh, red pill sort of propaganda that bothers me a lot. What is it about the contrarianness, that power of knowing something that all these other people don't get? What is it about that that draws all these people in? You know, there's a sociologist that, that we've looked at called Michael Barkun, and, and he talks about this in terms of a concept of stigmatized knowledge. 
So stigmatized knowledge is knowledge that's outside of the mainstream. It's knowledge, it's it's any set of knowledge claims that gives a group a sense that they know something that everyone else doesn't know. And that it's because of their specialness. It's because of their being initiated, if it's if it's a spiritual cult or a, a religious extremism group. Uh, but it could also be it's just because they 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 have great critical thinking and they're willing to you know stand up for the truth like I think a lot of atheists have felt in a culture dominated uh, by religious believers in the United States. So that kind of stigmatized knowledge, that sense of belonging to a group who are more conscious, who are more awakened, who know things that the mainstream doesn't know, especially big pharma. You start to see an overlap there because the belief in alternative medicine, the belief in energy healing, the belief that certain lifestyle choices will give you an unreasonable amount of protection against the things that everyone else is vulnerable to, like, say, the COVID-19 virus. That then has overlap with conspiracy theories, because when the evidence doesn't support what you're saying, well, then it must be because it's being covered up. It must be because the big, big pharma is in collusion with the mainstream media, et cetera. And I think that it's what you're describing, actually, I think is perhaps a, a personality type that that has a transitive kind of property across these different groups, even though the ideology may be different. It's perhaps a, a shared psychology that is drawn to stigmatized knowledge. One trend I've noticed across uh, with atheists, because being an atheist, I've written about atheist topics and having a presence on social media, whenever I had published an article about that, people would say, oh, you don't have any respect for the sacred. There's all this and this. But then when I would actually publish the good aspects of religion, which I believe are community and morals, and there, there's a lot to draw from, atheists would get mad and be like, how can you support any religion? And so, and what I feel is that one piece that uh, Julian put it very well, but the next piece is also uh, the fact that our brains consume 20% of our body's energy, and we therefore take shortcuts all the time in our thinking to conserve energy. That's a biological trait. But what does that translate as? It translates as binaries are easiest to understand. So even in our RFK coverage we're doing right now, he speaks only in binaries. He puts all of Western medicine, all of pharma on one side as if all of those researchers and institutions were all on board with the same program. And it's just not true. So we have to contend with the fact that binaries are very appealing. And as Julian said, if we can be on the side of the righteous, then that just makes us feel better about ourselves and gives us some sense of meaning, which is ultimately what I think all religions strive for, which is not necessarily a bad thing. But when there's no nuance, and when you constantly take context out of situations, uh, it becomes very hard to have intelligent discussions, especially on social media, which is designed for binaries. Let me let me set you up there, since uh, you recently had an excerpt of your book, uh, a part about Robert F. Kennedy Jr. run in Time magazine. What is the danger of Robert F. Kennedy for people who haven't closely followed his career or who don't closely follow politics right now? Well, there are a lot of dangers, and I'm sure Julian will pick up some that I don't identify, but right now... To come onto this call, I was recording a bonus episode about his healthcare policy roundtable he recently had with a whole host of anti-vaxxers, Mickey Willis, Sherry Tenpenny, Joseph Mercolis, A or G. And this is who he's putting forward as having some stake in healthcare in America, which itself is insane. But as I'm listening, he's talking about defunding journals and blackballing researchers who have accept who have gotten their drugs approved through the FDA process. Now Everything that he says, or most things, have a little bit of truth. The FDA approval process does have problems. Uh, I've actually written about that for years. But that does not mean, as I just said, every institution or researcher has a problem. And when he says these things, he's like, I'm going to blackball, I'm going to ban them for life from getting drugs approved because they're not studying the links between vaccines and autism. He always says things that are actually already happening like that link has been covered in numerous meta-analyses. He says he's going to move all infectious disease research to chronic disease research because he doesn't think infectious diseases are actually a problem. That's just insane. And there is already 
I've identified at least tens of millions, probably more of, of funding going to chronic disease research. But because he's, he exists in this uh, echo chamber of his own community that is created, he can say things like that. They'll just buy it. They're not going to actually go and research the fact that there is funding for these things. And that's how he's gaining traction. And when you actually listening to some of his policies, they're really, really scary. Why? I mean, who knows how he's going to do in this presidential campaign if it's just a launching pad for some other sort of work that he wants to do because he gets all this attention. But um, stepping aside from the politics of it all, last weekend I had my in-laws over and we needed to make dinner in a crunch. Instead of ordering out, we did something even easier thanks to ButcherBox. We were able to grab just what we needed and exactly how much we needed from the freezer. After that, everything else was a breeze. You too can skip the grocery store knowing you have the food you trust and the food you chose in your freezer. I know that might sound strange coming from me since I'm vegetarian, but they have a high-quality veggie burger that I absolutely love. They have options for pescatarians too. And if you eat everything, that's also okay. The food from ButcherBox is high-quality, grass-fed, and free-range. Have peace of mind knowing there are no antibiotics or added hormones. Sign up at ButcherBox.com friendly and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com friendly and use code FRIENDLY to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. I am curious about the anti-vax propaganda because it's it seems so obviously wrong that, that the efficacy of vaccines, we know. We could point to the science. You could ask doctors, all that stuff. I'm wondering, and we just went through a global pandemic. What is it about the science of vaccines that's not getting through to the people, the, the growing number of people who seem to be taken in by the lies about vaccines? You know, it's nothing new. And I think really, you know, if, if, if for people who've been in the atheist and skeptical community for a long time, you know that this is one of the topics that eventually you become familiar with. Like, oh, yeah, there's all of this anti, there are all of these anti-vax arguments, just like there's all of these creationist arguments. And here, here's what's wrong with all of them. Here are all the logical fallacies. Here are the ways they're misrepresenting the science, right? Cherry picking the data, gish galloping you with a bunch of stuff that you could never possibly get to. So Kennedy is a master at doing that. He's He's a lawyer. He has a 20-year legal background as someone who was really advocating for the environment and really going after big corporations. All of that is totally legit. But he was also working within a legal system where I don't know what the exact definition of it is, but the standards of evidence are very different than science. It's more the preponderance of evidence kind of thing, where I think it may just be like 51%. He's used to arguing persuasively about those sorts of topics. And then I think there's a way that the anti-vax stuff just, he slid into that really, really easily. And now I think what's dangerous about it is that there's a continue, it's part of like this disinformation crisis, you know, the, the overwhelm of social media, the, the fire hose of content, the contrarian um, uh, alt media sphere that's always looking for new clickbait. This is now the thing that's kind of being pushed into the mainstream. And I think in contrast to the skeptical community, uh, the mainstream world is not as used to really looking at all of this stuff. So the arguments sound convincing and they sound scary. And Kennedy is good at weaving that fear and at, at linking the sense of paranoia about vaccines and, and big pharma, you know, not caring about killing babies and kids, you know, at linking that to a kind of noble... A uh, crusader kind of uh, Camelot energy. Does it the think- Trump? Go ahead. Sorry. What the Trump presidency proved is that people are not going to actually research the topics and they'll just take whatever he says. And we're seeing that. So we're actually recording this today. The Time Magazine article came out and. Already, even though I just posted an hour ago before I jumped on, I'm noticing people saying Kennedy's such an environmental champion. And then my response 
is always, do you realize that he has stated, and you can go to his website, that he thinks the free market is going to solve environmental problems. And most people will not have done that, even though he stated it. They just kind of take this mythos of this person and apply it as if that's what he does. And both with healthcare and with climate change, he wants the free market to decide, which is, I think most people, if they knew what that meant, they would not be on board with what he's saying. But he he's professing to be the first podcast presidential candidate. And there's a lot of dangers with that sort of avenue into the mainstream attention. One thing I don't get about people like RFK is if we're talking about right wing misinformation, I could pretty easily point you to where the misinformation is being spread. They have right wing media outlets. They have Fox News, Newsmax, all those places. So like there's kind of a hub for where all that stuff is coming from. If I ask you guys about spirituality and the BS associated with that, is that coming from a certain central place or is it just coming from individuals with these outsized platforms? Well, Derek probably has some more thoughts on it, but what I'll say here is that uh, one of the guests that we've had really frequently on the show is um, Imran Ahmed from the Center for Countering Digital Hate. And they're the group who put out that report a couple of years ago called The Disinformation Dozen, which basically said, look, here are the 12 people who are responsible for like over 70% of the anti-vaccine disinformation that gets spread. But the other thing that has happened, so yeah, it's individuals. And it's, and it's, and it's not only individuals, it's an industry. It's a networked lucrative industry where they they're on email lists together they're doing big summits and and workshops during the pandemic it was all online and they're selling books and they're selling online courses and it's everything from like how to protect you know you and your family with colloidal silver and you know some special kind of device that blocks emf frequencies to like why you should never take vaccines so there's that but then there is also the phenomenon that we've tracked on the podcast which is that culturally liberal not particularly political, but culturally liberal because they go to Whole Foods, they have the yoga mat under their arm, they go see their, their acupuncturist when their knee starts bothering them, they like to take natural remedies instead of like going to see the doctor, all of that kind of stuff. That community, in terms of the people we've covered, not everyone, but the people we've covered, have slowly trended further and further to the right to where, great example, Russell Brand now hosts the majority of his show on Rumble. So they're on Rumble, they're on Telegram, they're on the same places where the right-wing extremists ended up. Um, and they may not be overtly right-wing, but they're using a lot of right-wing talking points in their clickbait. And these models existed before the pandemic. So what Julian just said about the network effects, Hay House is a good model for that. And we we had an ex-Hay House author who became critical of their practices on uh, early in the pandemic. And the idea is that when you get a publishing deal with them, you kind of sign on to like giving blurbs for the other authors and going on speaking tours and promoting them on social media. And this is not uncommon. It's marketing. But the spiritual community has used those techniques for decades, if not generations. Uh, so that and so you see it spilling over now with Russell Brand, as soon as the Twitter files come out, he has Barry Weiss on, he has Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi on. And now they're doing live event tours that are supposedly going to Schellenberger's climate change uh, uh, nonprofit. And when you go to the climate change nonprofit site, what do you find? The latest article is on anti-trans ideology. So you see all of this just kind of confused and together, but because they have stages and voices that people listen to, they kind of overlook the fact that there's not logical consistency in what they're saying. It's all affect that they're going for. Do these people realize that all of their conspiracies seem to align with right-wing ideology? Like, there's no conspiracy theory I've heard about, like, hey, all trans people have a higher IQ. It's never that. <laughs> <laughs> no, they generally will align more with libertarian at least stated ideology, that's usually where the default. I don't always think they know what that means, but it's the liberty thing. It's the sovereign individual idea. That's mostly where I see the language go to. It's almost like they think that they transcend politics into this place where it's just about autonomy and sovereignty and liberty. And you'll find that in a lot in people like J.P. Sears and Mickey Willis who talk, use that language to avoid their political rhetoric. Yeah, there's a couple of really interesting overlaps there that come to mind. 
One is that the uh, the spiritual seeker and the spiritual influencer has often sought to be uh, transcendent of politics, to be beyond the world, right? And so, in in there, there's a, there's a there's a way that if you squint just right, you can see how that overlaps with the podcasting world. You can see how it overlaps with the heterodox sphere and with Joe Rogan saying, "What? Well, I'm not I'm not a conservative. I'm just asking questions. I'm just a guy. I'm just a meathead. You shouldn't listen to me." But I'm going to have on like the three biggest anti-vaxxers and the two biggest promoters of ivermectin in the world in a two month period and just ask questions while they like spew the most outrageous conspiracy theories and like, ah, who knows? Like I believe in free speech. So there's that whole piece where I think the the subculture that we cover, which is the yoga and wellness space that we've really looked at very closely, has had some some similar sensibilities in terms of like a common sense I don't really know what the hell I'm talking about, but like, it seems obvious to me that like babies shouldn't receive that many vaccines in the first two years of life. I mean, think about it, right? So there's that piece, but there's another piece here, which is that I think Derek is talking about libertarianism. And I think in terms of the more overtly conservative piece, there's something we track in the book, which is a kind of alternative purity culture, right? Where there's a moralism around doing your practice. There's a moralism around the kind of thoughts that you have. There's a moralism about the food that you eat and how you treat your body when you're sick and how to not get sick by being a pure person who only does, who does cleansing practices, right? So that then has, I, I often wondered about that when I was younger, like this actually seems oddly like a conservative religious relationship to reality, even though it's dressed up in the robes of some kind of like quasi Eastern, you know, ideas. You mentioned Joe Rogan. I think you mentioned uh, some of those YouTubers who have basically shifted to promoting this stuff as well. How many purveyors of this nonsense know it's BS or are they all like true believers in this stuff? Or is that just a case by case thing? Exactly. It's something I've brought up often on the podcast is you can never tell someone's intentions, but you can, uh, the sort of heuristic I have is watch what they say, then watch what they sell. So if someone is specifically saying something and then selling at the end of that statement, that's a pretty clear indicator that there's at least a grift involved. Whether or not they believe it is up open for debate. And then there are some people like Christiane Northrup, someone we covered a lot, she really isn't selling anything at this point in her life. I mean, maybe she has some downlines as some pharma that she or some uh, supplements that she sells. She but was it's not Derek, really. She was requesting donations for a while there. Okay, so yeah. so that's that that, but it usually doesn't. It's align specifically with a product. Yeah, that's that's its own thing. But someone like JP Sears, we very clearly identify whether or not he believes it. It doesn't really matter because you can watch the downline happen in real time. And it's the same sort of paradigm that Kennedy is setting up with all pharma is bad. And then you look at the New York Times piece that recently came out where it shows just how much money and him and he made Children's Defense Fund and himself from lawsuits that he was a part of millions of dollars. So you can see why those binaries work so well in this world. Yeah. And not only that, the people that we've tracked, which which have been these more culturally liberal, more maybe kind of spiritual influencer types who've trended slowly to the right, who got really into conspiracy theories, almost to a person, while they were preaching against the government telling you what to do in terms of COVID restrictions and vaccines, they knew how to fill out that paperwork and get the big PPP loan, including Kennedy. His organization took a huge PPP loan, and these are all the loans that were forgiven. So this was free money that they took from the government while they were talking about how the government was trying to in, induce turnkey totalitarianism, uh, Kennedy called it. And I think the thing, too, in terms of our beat to, re to really get what we were following is you have a group of entrepreneurial outsiders who, when the pandemic hit, had no visible means of support. Right? They can't gather and do their breathwork classes. They can't do their kirtan singing. They can't get together in a small, hot room and do yoga together. Right? How are we going to make a living? There's no social safety net in this country. They get no benefits from any of their gigs. Right? They're just gig workers, essentially. I was amongst them. And so suddenly it's like, how? 
A, how do I deal with the anxiety? B, how do I figure out how to monetize? And wouldn't you know it, because they already, many of them, including myself, already were good at marketing, already knew how to use social media, already had a decent following, some of them, right? Started putting out conspiratorial stuff, started remixing QAnon-style ideas, even if they didn't know they were QAnon-style ideas, with New Age concepts, so that the great awakening that you heard from QAnon, which is like an echo of like really old evangelical uh, religious Puritanism starts getting remixed into like, oh, we're going to awaken into fifth dimensional reality because the aliens are telling me, right? And what do you see? As the more these people go into outlandish conspiracy crap, the bigger their followings get, the more clicks they're getting, the more they're sending people to their, you know, their their Patreons or their or wherever they're able to monetize, and they're going to their website and they're joining up for different courses and stuff like that. So, how much do they believe it? I think there's a temperament there. It's of course it's impossible to know what's really in their heart. I think there's a temperament there where a lot of it is sincere. But I think there's also an unavoidable pull. And this is something that gets talked about a lot in general with alternative media these days of audience capture, where you recognize, hey, this is what my audience is responding to. This is what drives my ad revenue. I'm going to go even harder next time. I am curious if someone like RFK is running as the Democratic nominee for president, and presumably he will get crushed, fine. Dr. Oz, another purveyor of nonsense, ran for office for Senate. He lost. Is there any benefit to guys like that running for office and losing? Or is it just, well, they had a platform as long as they had it. That's more opportunity for them to spread their misinformation. I'm just wondering if there's any uh, silver lining to these guys running and eventually losing. I think that there's a attention capture that is a benefit. But more importantly, we've seen with the conservative Christian movement that some people have a very good long game. And so losing a battle to them does not necessarily translate into a net negative. Uh, The overturning of Roe versus Wade is a good example of that. I remember reading a Harper's Magazine article in 2001 about these college campuses that were evangelicals that were training politicians uh, specifically to get into government to overturn legislation that they wanted for their agenda. A generation later, we're seeing that in real time. So I think a lot of people, and especially, you know, this is a broad overview I'm giving, but liberals tend to be a little bit more quick-minded, instantaneous, and not holding on to causes as well. And that's really unfortunate because some people understand the long game. And I think that someone like Kennedy, especially, look at the family he's coming from, the dynasty of it, I what overall it won't be a negative to him. Someone like Dr. Oz, that could be a little bit different because I don't know where his empire is at now, but that could have just been some hubris that got him there. And maybe he being seen the way he is in the spotlight is has shifted and maybe that bothers him. But for a lot of people, I think it's only beneficial. And typically what the first thing you do is when you announce that you're running for president is you publish a book or you've had a book that came out, uh, you know, a couple of weeks or months earlier. So Kennedy's book right now is the real Anthony Fauci. (laughs) And it's, you know, and part of his, part of his campaign rhetoric is that he thinks Anthony Fauci should be prosecuted. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that the exposure that these people get uh, is a net negative for the for the world. Just to spin off that, is there a way? I mean, Dr. Oz ran as a Republican, different issue than RFK. Is there a way to prevent them from using politics as their pulpit to to do their media campaigns? Oh my God, I wish there was a way. I mean, and may, may, maybe it would be bad if there was a way. I don't. I don't know. Like where those particular lines would be in terms of authoritarianism. I know that other liberal democracies have uh, much cleaner dividing lines, much better guardrails around uh, the separation of commerce and personal self-aggrandizement and enriching oneself and actually running for for office. I remember I lived in, I, I grew up in South Africa, you know, voted in an election there where only white people could vote because my dad said, you have to go and vote. There's a, you're voting for 10 black people. And then I lived in England before I came here and, and I voted in an election in England. And it was before I got to experience what American elections were like in terms of the circus. 
and how long it takes and how much money you need. And in England, the at that time, this was like the early 90s, the election campaign for prime minister and for which party was going to rule the country was two weeks. So two-week campaign, if you had more than 5% of uh, support in the polls. You got equal television time. There were no political ads. And the television time consisted in sitting across from a hard-nosed political reporter who asked you difficult questions and called you out if you said silly things. And like, I think that might be good. <laughs> that would be nice. Um, what has frustrated both of you when it comes to media coverage of not just the spiritual grifters we've mentioned, but any of them? The lack of research. I am an old school journalist in terms of I started journalism 30 years ago this year. And the amount of research that had to happen before I published a story back in the 90s and early aughts was much different than writing out something as soon as possible and getting it out there with a clickbaity title. When I used to work in newspapers, you had one person on staff who wrote all of the titles so that they didn't contradict or you didn't repeat titles for your headlines, for example, or leads. And that's just, that's completely gone. And I, I do think there is something to an organization like ProPublica, which really takes its time and does really good, impactful work that is not liberal or conservative. They are about middle of the line when they when they cover. They, they've exposed Clarence Thomas, but they also talked about Obama or some questionable property in Hawaii. They've done a lot of important deep dives. And I, I miss that old school type of journalism that actually took its time to research. When you have an RFK, you have Crystal Ball, who did a fantastic job pushing back and not letting him gish gallop during that eight minute segment that ran a few weeks ago. That is so rare. And she did it very respectfully. It wasn't a heated on pushing back. She kept saying, I'm with you here, but here and keeping him on point. That sort of journalism is so important. Now, I would, I know, I'm not trying to romanticize. I know we're not going back to that place, but I would like to see more reporters know what they're doing when they get in a conversation with someone, so that they can actually at least push back and create some friction instead of a Rogan who only does that with people he doesn't agree with. But if he agrees with someone, there's none of that whatsoever. I don't know if you have anything to add to that one, Julian. Well. I think for me, there's a there's a larger picture that I wish was being talked about more, which is that there's a there's a global phenomenon of populism that trends in the direction of kind of lost golden age fascism and authoritarianism, and it it thrives in, for many different reasons. But I think one of them is the the time that we're in in terms of digital media means that charismatic figures who make bold you know, fact-free proclamations. It's a whole alternative facts kind of fake news reality that we're in right now. Like really, I feel like there's a generation, especially of kids coming up who will desperately need very good media literacy education to understand how this kind of populist, common sense um, demagoguery works because it is taking over the world and we're in danger of it taking over here. You know, for us, this may sound like a like an unfair kind of exaggeration, but I see someone like uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. making the kind of waves he's making, even if he does get crushed, as being kind of similar to Trump. It's like the Trump of the Democratic Party, someone who's going to come in and present himself as a populist while he's saying the answer to our healthcare problems is going to be the free market, the answer to climate change is going to be the free market, prosecute Fauci, stop all childhood vaccines and make sure they're put through double-blind placebo-controlled trials, which really would amount to uh, an, another Tuskegee, right? Where you're going, to, you're going to take a bunch of kids and leave them hanging in the face of diseases that we know for a fact are deadly, disfiguring, and disabling, as if like that's required when we have decades and decades of data that shows that vaccines are are safe and you know have have changed the world who do you think is more dangerous i don't know if this is a fair question but i'll ask it anyway who's more dangerous someone like gwyneth paltrow who is pitching nonsense and just making a ton of money off of it or someone like alex jones pitching alex a very jones. different type because alex jones hands down because he's um Alex Jones has 
so much of uh, so much overlap and so much influence in super militant far right paranoid violent circles and he has he he every time he blows his top he has no guardrails in terms of just really uh inciting things like uh his followers going and, and harassing all of the the sandy hook parents who suffered an, an extraordinary tragedy but he convinced them that they were crisis actors. Uh, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow, I, I'm not a fan of, and I think it would be better if she wasn't doing the kind of business she's doing. I, I don't think it's quite as dangerous as Alex Jones. I'd agree with that. Paltrow's annoying, but it's not nearly the same level. The Sandy Hook, 9-11, the trutherism bothered me because I was in New York City that day. I was in the Trade Center that an hour before the first plane hit. It was a very personal day. So seeing him push that was really problematic. But the Sandy Hook thing is just one of the most despicable acts by a human being I've seen in my lifetime. And to imagine the pain and suffering the parents endured and to have him mobilize people to say it didn't happen. There's no excuse for that. I think he's one of the worst human beings in the world. So it would be, you could pretty much put anyone up against him and I'm going to go Alex Jones. He's the heavyweight Fair. champion of, of yeah. conspiracy you know, offenders. But to talk about Gwyneth Paltrow for a moment, I see her at kind of like Oprah as more of part of a slow moving cultural kind of legitimating of a lot of pseudoscience, of a lot of quack cures, often for very serious diseases, and a lot of false ideas about how to stay healthy, how to boost your immune system, how to how to like the kinds of things you need to be worried about. Like she's run articles on Goop that have said women shouldn't wear bras because bras cause breast cancer, and she's she sold you know various products that are that where it's just like what are you even talking about? So there I was think- some. Sorry, there was some article a while ago, I'm sure you guys saw it, but it said uh, those two in particular, Gwyneth Paltrow, Alex Jones, were selling the exact same products under different branding. That's right. Because their audience would just buy into it. It didn't matter what the facts were, what the object was. Yeah, this is very much Derek's Derek's territory, so I'll, I'll let him get into it here. But like the supplement piece, the untested supplement piece is actually a very interesting hinge point between culturally liberal kind of wellness communities and then Alex Jones. And Paltrow's community is largely politically disengaged. Julian's in Los Angeles. I moved to Portland, Oregon a year ago, but I lived in LA for 11 years and taught yoga there. And I'll I'll speak for myself. I'm sure there's some crossover with Julian's experiences. But the yoga moms who go there, they, you know, they go in the mid-morning, they have their yoga, then they go out for brunch, and they're not really engaged in local or national politics on any level. Uh, When you saw the measles outbreak in 2015 in Brentwood, uh, that was where children were getting measles because the mothers were not vaccinating because that was a thing in the Santa Monica Brentwood area at the time. That's very much indicative of the Paltrow crowd because that's the type of ideology that will sit there. But none of those, none of those, and I don't want to just put it on moms, guys too. Los Angeles, you know, is, is, is across genders. There's a lot of a political detachment there. But uh, but none of those people are going up to people's houses or they're not yelling at people on Twitter to the level of aggrievement that you'll find in Jones's crowd. Speaking of Jones, I feel like I read somewhere when I was uh, researching for what to ask you guys, um, there was something you had written about the eugenics to yoga pipeline. And uh, can you explain what that's all about? Because I had not heard that phrasing before. Well, it's putting pieces together and it's not a direct pipeline to be clear, but it is an interesting phenomenon that happened in the late 19th century. And so you have a man named Eugene Sandow, who was very famously the first sort of Schwarzenegger before Schwarzenegger with his shirt off, holding lion skins. He's very buff for the time. Wouldn't hold up to TRT replacement today, but it's still was pretty impressive. He was very strong. And he also happened to be a white supremacist. Uh, I found some documentation that Eugene, that's not his real name, and Eugene was short for eugenics, which was a going fury at the time. And even though he traveled to India and across Europe to different countries to display his physicality. Uh, he was still a white supremacist. I read his one of his books, and we quote it, where he uses the N-word very liberally there. And 
you you find um, when he goes to India, mm-hmm. and this is the crossover. You have a culture that had been under colonialism for centuries, and they were getting into very into weightlifting and British wrestling and the origins of modern postural yoga, as Mark Singleton and others have written about, come from this body physique movement, this strength against the colonial rulers. And when he went to India, Sandow was a very popular figure, so he influenced some of the people who ended up bringing yoga to the West. So it's just more of this idea of the strongman, which we're still seeing today in Trump and in Kennedy's campaign. But I think people have a very romanticized notion that 5,000 years ago, people were putting down yoga mats and doing their vinyasa flow. And that's just not the case. It is an evolving form. It's going to keep evolving. But where it really struck a chord in the Western world was that late 19th century era when you had eugenicists that were promoting certain ideas of Julian Flagg purity culture before that were combining with spirituality and that sort of set off the modern new age movement. Yeah. So it's, it's really getting that this, what we call yoga in the West in terms of the physical practice comes from the 1930s and it's, it is a combination of uh, physical fitness stuff that they were getting from Europe and from people like Sandow, an obsession with the with the strong body, uh, gymnastics that they were getting from Scandinavia and from from German, uh, like German wrestling stuff. There's several different things that were being combined with yoga that had existed already for you know hundreds of years, if not longer, and that that combination ends up getting marketed very effectively to the West, and the West gets into it. And it's not to say that. That that woven through all of that is like a secret, you know, eugenics or or um, fascist kind of ideology. But it's it's there. It's there contextually, and in some ways, when you look now at today's India and you look at Modi, and you look at Hindutva, and you look at this idea that India is only for Hindus. And how he has turned a blind eye throughout his political career to incredible atrocities against Muslim people there. And the idea that all, all Indians should be doing yoga, that yoga is, is our – there's this cultural kind of sense of like what it means to be the true Indian. It's not white supremacy, um, but you know, it's, the, it's, it's the Indian version of it to some extent, right? Modi tried to trademark yoga. <laughs> to give you any indication of of how much he's he teaches yoga classes to tens of thousands of people and then supports either getting all the muslims out into pakistan or elsewhere or just as uh julian said overlooking uh the atrocities that are committed on them i know all of these different conspiracies we're talking about have their own unique flavors and everything but is there a question or two that you wish people who are susceptible to these ideas could ask when they're presented with any of these grifts? Well, I would say uh, the the question would probably be, could you be more specific? Um, One of the, one of the fallacies or fallacious ways of, of reasoning and making arguments and buying into beliefs that's really, really common in conspiracy circles is generalizing. It's it's generalizing about a them or a they, a, a cabal that is behind the scenes, that is that is pulling the strings, that wants to take over the world, that wants to you know control your life. It's taking specifics like Viox is a t- is an example, or, or the Sackler family with uh, with opiates, where there there's an actual situation where things were done incorrectly by a government agency or a pharmaceutical company or something like that. Uh, the Tuskegee experiment is a great example as well. There are actual examples that we know about because they were exposed, because there was evidence that proved them to be the case, and because people got punished for those things. From those specific examples, there is a tendency to generalize in paranoid ways and say, if this, therefore that. Even though I don't have evidence for that, I've already validated what I'm about to say with this. So can you be more specific? Can you give me actual evidence? What are you actually saying? And how does this then tie into, you know, the the blood drinking satanic pedophile cabal? (laughs) That'd be a good question. My question to the wellness community is, okay, if you're going to be anti-pharma everything and you're going to say, bring down Pfizer, are you going to want to take Viagra off the shelf? If you're going to say that natural cures are the right 
remedy and you can stay young and healthy by doing these things? Will you stop doing Botox or having other cosmetic surgeries? Again, these binaries that exist, you know, let's just say that there is a recent video that was railing against Big Pharma, and it pretty much looks like the man behind it is on TRT, and then the woman, his wife, is using Botox. And it's just, if you can't weigh out and talk honestly about those things, if you're only going to rail against the dimensions that make you money, uh, there's that's not very honest to me. It is an industry. There are problems with pharmaceuticals. I wrote a book about it, the one before this one, but uh, it doesn't mean that scientific advancements and achievements over the last 150 years ha have been some of the best uh, uh, that we've ever experienced as a species. I feel like I heard a lot of pastors doing this as well with the vaccine pushback in their churches when the people in their churches said, I don't want to get vaccinated because whatever the, the way this vaccine was created had to do with aborted fetuses or something. It's like, okay, but if you're going to say no to the COVID vaccine for that reason, uh, then are you also going to give up on aspirin? Are you going to, you know, do away with all the other things we have developed using the same methods? And of course, the answer is no, but we never get that far. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there's there's a kind of, there's a very, I call it pseudo skepticism or freshman skepticism, right? Where there's, there, you can, on the one hand, you can wander off into this territory where there's no way to know anything. So you're just going to believe the person who has the most charisma, right? Because what is knowledge anyway? What is evidence? All science has been corrupted. All the institutions have been captured. This is where I think the alternative media heterodox folks also like play into this. Oh, there's there's no way. To, so you can only trust me. And so it's like I'm going to be hyper skeptical in a paranoid and cynical way about the this selected group of claims, which usually come from places where there's a lot of good checks and balances. But I'm going to be completely credulous to the outrageous assertions of some influencer online who has happened to earn my trust through, you know, whatever good, whatever techniques they're good at using. One, one question I've been uh, seeing pop up lately is whether we should be debating something like vaccine efficacy. Do you have an opinion on that now that RFK is in the news? Is there any validity to having that debate? Every vaccine should be debated about the efficacy, but when the trials are concluded and they are shown to be efficacious, kind of ends the debate. And if you want to do further trials, that's that's science. They're, they are happening already. So Kennedy comes out and says these aren't happening. And we're like, what are you talking about? Hundreds of thousands of people have been tested in double-blind trials. What do you mean by this? Uh, and your, your statement about uh, MNR, mRNA before, like, Yes, the vaccine is new, but that technology is over 30 years old. And everything in science usually comes from different applications when you realize it's being used for other things. So as MPEC right now, as diabetes medication, all of a sudden, oh, it's a weight loss drug. That is common throughout scientific literature and history. So yes, to answer that specific question, they should always be debated. But the thing is, they are already and the idea that they're not is part of what he's counting on people to not understand. It's such a difficult question, right? So, so as Derek says, like, okay, this is understanding how scientific consensus works, understanding how, you know, what, what peer review looks like, understanding how to look at, at research and, you know, see the, the, the chain of how scientific knowledge has progressed, I think is really, really important in terms of the debate that is already going on, understanding that science proceeds by debate, if you will, metaphorically. The problem is we're in this time where appeals to free speech, appeals to not censoring anybody um, that I think are actually well-meaning and that maybe 10 years ago I would have agreed with in the current digital media sphere, it's, it just doesn't work. Uh, it's, it, it's that Jonathan Swift quote, right? That, uh, that the, the lie has traveled halfway around the world before the truth even gets its boots on. Like that you, you can, and, and the, the idea that it takes much more time and energy to refute a, a clever sounding falsehood than it does to actually utter it. So, it's a very difficult thing. I, I, I understand like Peter Hotez right now refusing to debate RFK Jr. I think it makes perfect sense. I, I, his arguments make sense to me. He's spoken to him before. He's, I think he's uh, uh, both he and, or maybe I'm confusing the two of them. Um, 
Oh, I'm I thought you had the right names, but I thought yeah, when yeah. I philosophically, I agree with both of yeah. you yeah. Uh, that especially about the lies spread a lot faster. There was a time several years ago, uh, maybe like a decade ago now, where a creationist, uh, Ken Ham, wanted to debate yes. Bill Nye, the science guy on creationism. Yes. And at the time they announced it, I think among the scientific crowd and the atheist crowd, it's like, what are you doing, Bill Nye? This is a dumb idea. Because, I mean, even though you're a TV guy, he's he knows what he's doing with presenting yeah. this these lies. That said, and, and I was part of the camp that said this is a dumb idea mm-hmm. in the first place. Since that time, I have heard personally from people who said they were creationists, they watched that debate, and it was that debate that gave them the spark they needed to flip over to the evolution side. It didn't happen overnight, but it got it rolling. And that I only say that to say it gives me some pause because yeah. I still agree with you. I don't know that like a Hotez versus Kennedy debate's going to yeah. accomplish anything good. But at the same time, maybe some of that gets through to people who might not be willing to hear it otherwise. I don't know if there's anything to that. I think that's a very, very interesting observation and that you heard that from people that it did change their minds. I tend to prefer what we do, of course, uh, which is which is to take what people have said, quote them directly by using clips and debunk their false claims Without going through, and, and it's, it's what you're saying, right? Ken Ham is a rhetorician. He is someone who is an expert in debating, just like RFK Jr. is a lawyer. These people are good at winning debates. It doesn't mean that they're right. It doesn't mean that they crushed the scientist, you know, it, it, but it can easily be spun that way. So maybe sometimes it's, it's an okay thing. I'm not 100% opposed to it, probably 99%, but I do think the media literacy analysis of claims, careful, like let's lay this all out so you don't think we're misrepresenting anything and debunk each thing and give citations. Maybe that doesn't reach everyone we're trying to reach, but I think it's a good way to create an archive of good material for people when they're ready. One of the best things about the podcast is the number of people who have contacted us who were anti-vax, who are now pro-vax from our podcast. And that's not just us. That's because we've had doctors and researchers and journalists and epidemiologists on our podcast to talk about why. In, in terms of the broader question, though, we know that pre-bunking works. And that's one of the challenges, right? Because in a Hotez-Kennedy debate, there's going to be no pre-bunking done. Everyone's coming already with their preformed ideas. So the amount of people that are going to be moved are going to be very small in that effect. Uh, and it just sets up a challenge because I agree with Julian about media literacy and, and science literacy as well are both needed. But if that pre-bunking isn't there, then debunking has been shown to not be nearly as efficacious. I just have uh, one final question for you both, and and you kind of alluded to it right now, but what have you found to be most effective to combat these lies, not just the vaccine, uh, the hoaxes that swirl around the efficacy of vaccines, but all the other uh, new age nonsense, spiritual nonsense you've also found? Uh, what has been the most effective technique? Is it the pre-bunking? Is it getting the right stuff in their heads to begin with or something else? The pre-bunking citation is from a research study that was done a couple of years ago that seems to be effective. Uh, the one thing I'll say from my own experiences as well as from research is that listening and trying to find common ground is very effective. Uh, and one thing that always comes at us when we post, I'll say from my experiences, is that we're shilling for pharma. And then when I say, hey, here are 10 articles I wrote about the problems of the pharmaceutical industry, or here's my last book that really looked at the problems with overprescriptions of antidepressants. That at least opens up a door where they're then coming at me with more of like, then why are you so on board with the vax? And then I could be like, because in this case, this shows efficacy, here's where I have a problem. And then those sorts of conversations, they are rare, but I've had them. I had one last week with someone online. I don't always have the patience to do that personally, uh, but it is an effective means. So hearing where someone is coming from, and we have a chapter in the book called Conspiritualists Are Not Wrong, which talks about this. There is common ground in almost all of these debates because they are more complex than a binary. 
getting someone to listen and engage and actually having an instructive conversation is a next step, but that is actually good. And we also learn in the process too. We've, we've admitted to things we've gotten wrong in the past on the podcast. I think that's a really important piece as well. Yeah. Just to follow on from that, I would say that the combination of um, being clear what you do and don't know and having empathy conversational empathy. So it's, it's interesting because there's different modes of communication, right? There's a, there, there, it's kind of impossible to do like a, 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 all your podcast episodes from an empathic place. Like you can have moments where you're trying to have, have that empathic kind of attitude. But I think in the, in the one-on-one situations, especially having a kind of empathy that seeks to listen and understand what are the legitimate grievances that you have? What are the things that you're afraid of? What are the ways in which you have felt betrayed by whatever it is, big pharma, the government, um, you know, institutions, the, the country that we live in? And how might we start to tease apart the, the facts from the fictions while also understanding that the, the grievances are legitimate and need to be addressed in an empathic way that actually might lead to more relief? than buying into the nonsense. Well, thank you both so much for your time. Uh, This was uh, Julian Walker and Derek Beres. Their podcast, which you should subscribe to right now, is called Conspirituality. And their book about this topic and so much more is called Conspirituality, How New Age Conspiracy Theories Became a Health Threat. Uh, Derek, Julian, thanks again for uh, joining me here. Great to be here with you. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having us.